Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are for another session of Baffling Combustions, and my name is Sam Truitt. I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew McCarran. And so this is part seven <laughs> of our ongoing penetration into the nooks and crannies and even the very corners of the corners of the poem, proem, prose poem of William Blake entitled Proverbs of Hell from his collection, The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. So I guess this is where we find ourselves. You know, I uh, I did a little inadvertent research on the sublime um, because I went to the Morgan Library three days ago. Amazing place. I love the Morgan Library and these uh, exhibitions, which if you look at the website, you just think like, who cares about architectural drawing in the 18th century? Brilliant. All the exhibitions I saw were brilliant. And one of them, a tiny one, when you go to the bathroom, they have these little oil paintings. And they are examples of the 19th century sublime. And the wall text defines sublime. And uh, according to somebody, John Ruskin, John Dunn, I forget who, some important <laughs> philosopher, Edmund Burke, uh, maybe. Um, Walter Pater. Yeah. Yeah. One of these, uh, Macaulay, not Macaulay, but I love the name Macaulay. Um, one of these guys says, yeah, the sublime is all about terror. It all has mm -hmm. to be something that's going to frighten you. Yeah. yeah. That's part of it. That's a yeah. component of it. So, uh, you know, yeah. we forgot that we last were, week, last time yeah. when we were discussing. We were talking about the, uh, you know, 19th century heavy hitters on the sublime. I really think of Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley and mm. Frankenstein actually is a work of sublime literature. Mm. And terrifying. Right. Like it definitely, it, it definitely puts its arms around the nature of terror. And it's the terror that we are living through now, I mm. believe. With the these terror of human incarnations. The tenet terror of human science run amok technology. 
I guess yeah. electricity was pretty new then, and the idea you would just electrify a corpse, it would come to life and be some kind of horrific monster, was a new idea. And electricity has pretty much turned our world into a monster, an all-devouring... I don't know, I saw my friend Tom Luciano recently, and he was you know, kvetching about global warming. He's like on the cutting edge of knowing everything about how doomed we are. And, uh, you know, you talk to him for a half an hour and the rest of your life, you're just uh, in stunned shock and dismay that everything is going to perish. What did he say? Just just that? that Well, he said, I guess, you know, there's different... I mean, you know, it was a while ago, but there's like different readings. There's different sort of scientific consensuses about how bad global warming is. Um, It is interesting to think about the different uh, inflections and dimensions of the sublime. And Mm -hmm. terror is definitely part of it. But Mm -hmm. I I think we did touch upon that in our last conversation no oh really i'm sorry man i forgot well, maybe we didn't use the word terror mm-hmm. i remember just saying that it was something in nature that brought one to some higher state of being or something and i uh-huh. it was often scary and i discussed the experience of looking over the atlantic ocean from the southern coast of maine and really wanting to rush back to the Airbnb because I was frightened. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting, of course, even as we speak, the hurricane, Category 4 hurricane, right. Ida, it has made landfall on the coast of Louisiana. And um, mm. when they when they say it hit landfall, that means technically that the eye of the hurricane has breached the coast. That mm. means that the front end of the hurricane has already augured into the shore, and now they've, you know, hit, they're in the eye, and then the balance of, I think, the devastation, or, you know, the force of the hurricane, the terror, the sublime terror is um, halfway to ground, unless they're using it, you know, not in its technical way, but I, I did get a, a news flash on the coconut that the um, landfall occur- has occurred. Yeah, I saw yeah. a terrifying satellite image on some news station. Maybe it was CNN. Looks uh, just devastating. Oh, of what? Of the uh, yeah, the of, hurricane. Of the the houses destroyed. No, the image of the hurricane with the eye and just its its circumference was significant. It was a satellite image. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say, because I I don't think of hurricanes as being visual, because I associate the sublime with the visual. Maybe that's wrong, but um, like a tornado that you can see for 20 miles away, and it's got this crazy, surreal-looking shape. But a hurricane, I don't think, has that, right? If you, if you see a hurricane from 20 miles away, it just looks like a bunch of wind. It doesn't have a sublime, mystical, mysterious shape, I think. Maybe from the satellite it does. Uh, a week and a half ago when I was at BARD in the middle of the night, my phone um, alarm went off, and there was a tornado warning 
and the, the text instructed me to find um, shelter in a basement immediately. <laughs> but I didn't. I just changed my position in bed. But we talked about this. I remember now. I'm sorry. Let's move on. Did we talk about that? Well, I mean, it's interesting, Sparrow, that you said you can just see the wind, but you can't see the wind. You can see that which the wind displaces. Mm-hmm. But you can't yeah, actually, point. you know, you see the waves, the clouds, the rain, you know, going horizontal, things like that. I mean, it's very similar to words, right? Like but you can't see words? Well, I mean, it's interesting. There's a force beyond words that exists, mm-hmm. but the you can see that force behind words through the words, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mean thought? In, uh, huh. I mean, y- yeah. I mean, words appear. We hypothesize that words are connected to thought. But my experience of words is not necessarily connected to thought like as i speak i'm not thinking i'm speaking you know it yeah, seems it seems point. independent of rash uh, hmm, what do we what is thought oh, gosh that reminds me of heidegger no his his book is what is thinking i guess the translation but mm. um yeah i'm not sure that the Force behind words is thought. I'm not positive about that. I think I just it's read easy this, uh, shorthand. I read this book uh, recently. You know, it's like the last book I read. It's called McLuhan for Beginners. Marshall McLuhan, the thought of Marshall McLuhan. So now I'm briefly kind of a middle brow expert on McLuhan. And McLuhan says every media, every medium is an extension of some sense of something in a human being. And what are words? So radio is an extension of the voice. The voice is an extension of words. Words are an extension of thought. And thought, that's where the chain ends, according to this book. There's nothing Mm -hmm. behind thought. Thought is the origin. Very Cartesian. I was recently at the Museum of Natural History with my daughter just two days ago. And in one exhibit, I read that the centers in the brain neurologically for music and language were the same, or there was a great deal of overlap. Mm-hmm. And mm. I think of language as relating to music. Mm-hmm. Particularly uh-huh. the music that, you know, for people like us, modern Americans, think of music as having words in it. We don't really uh-huh. listen to instrumental music very much. Like you listen mm-hmm. on the radio, you don't really hear instrumental music. Mm-hmm. You hear classical music for you know on you know, the NPR station, but everything else is music with words, music that is essentially an extension of words. I was just thinking how Tuli Kupferberg well, told me I, that like you take, uh, he said, here's how you write a song: you write down the words, and the words will suggest a tune. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, a lot of a lot of music uh, that has words in it, which I would agree that for most of 
us inured to listening to music on the radio or blah, blah, you know, kind of conventional songs, I guess. Um, a lot of times the words come to feel a little secondary to the melody, mm -hmm. um, that the words seem kind of there to get, you know, that are sort of, you know, as, as I would say, it's kind of like getting into the house. If you want a burglar, you know, if you want to do a home mm. invasion on a house and there's a dog in the yard, you know, mm. it's good to have a piece of steak that, you know, <laughs> as you enter the gate, you can throw to the dog so that it can be preoccupied so that you can enter the house and, um, you know, steal what you want or whatever. Mm. And I was also thinking, to Andrew about what you said relative to the tornado, the warning and, you know, advising you to enter some kind of structure, some sort of house and go down into the basement, you know, because that's, you know, to when you come into confrontation or in the proximity of that which is sublime. <laughs> in order for you to remain in that sublime state, you need to be situated in the house, you know? And the mm. house is made up, you know, as Democritus said, and as we've touched on before, you know, he said something like, all I perceive is my body, you know, mm. that you need the house of the senses. You need to be in your house in order to endure the sublime. Hmm. Hmm. You mean well, your your body so is sort of like a shield against the sublime? If you didn't have your body, you'd just evaporate from the intensity of some sublime experience. Is that what you mean? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, the sublime experience cannot be engaged unless you have a body. You have to have a body oh, that which may be threatened, that which may be... Oh. pushed, you know, all in across the table. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to have something that's at stake. Right. Again, if, you're you're a, uh, if you're a ghost floating above a hurricane, it's just a spectacle to you. Right. Which, uh, and a lot of us are ghosts watching everything on TV or whatever it is, or YouTube. And... And and really, we are kind of watching it like like phantoms looking down on the universe without touching it. Yes. But, but when you're in the presence of something of real danger, like I was in New York City the other day and I was on some crazy misadventure on the subways. I left my daughter's house in Bed-Stuy at 12.36 at night. I got home to my dad's house, which was about four miles away, at three in the morning. Oh, Things went really badly for me. Mm. Really, the G train had was in two different legs. Anyway, I don't need to go into it, but I did find myself like at 2.30 in the morning standing at the York Street station. You know, mm. this is a station that is deserted in the afternoon there's never anyone there and mm -hmm. uh, 
and this is 2.30 at night. Like, what happened? Someone could just come. Also, I'm reading this book about uh, Jack the Ripper. Somebody could just come and pull off your head and leave you lying in two parts on the ground, and no one would ever know. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, that didn't happen at all. Everything worked mm-hmm. out beautifully. That's why I'm here on this podcast. Were there people? Yeah. Were there other people? You said it's uh, deserted. Did you, did you see anyone? Well, there was one guy got off the train with me, and I was desperate to stay near him. You know, just to have kind of an ally in case you know Jack the Ripper came along. Mm-hmm. And so I started talking to him kind of compulsively, and I said to him. Well, I just got off the train. It turns out I was taking the wrong train. I have to go back the other way. And he uh, and he said, uh, well, I'm going to Queens. I said, you're going to Queens. Why did you get off the train? And he said, I didn't understand him. He had an accent. He said something like, I wanted the B. And I said, you're trying to get the B train? And he said, no, I want to pee. He got oh. off the train so he could pee on the tracks. But then he couldn't do that next to me because of the, you know, general delicacy people have about such things. So uh-huh. he went a little ways off. Then a guy comes up, Mexican-looking guy, 34 years old, with his four-year-old son. They're mm-hmm. very bedraggled, very tired-looking four-year-old son. They're walking together towards me down the uh, platform. And when I saw that scenario man with four-year-old son i thought everything's going to be fine right and then i heard mexican music coming from the other end of the platform and it's like oh this is what happens at 2 30 in the morning in new york city it doesn't Um, become it's not full of killers it's full of mexicans who work uh so hard that some of them get off of work at uh, two in the morning huh i mean the these are the things that happen on the ghost train. Yeah. The, as the I think G the train, ghost is... train came along. Well, I, I mean, the go, the train that comes along and picks up the garbage from the garbage cans. If that's what you, that's what I think of as the ghost train. Oh, I thought the G train was referred to as the ghost train because oh, it really? doesn't have many subscribers or riders. Oh. Yeah. Well, I mean, now it's a with the uh... title for a poem about the sublime. You know, you would entitle it Ghost Train. Yeah. I mean, one thing, I, you know, that occurs to me is, is the sublime, can the sublime be self-constituted? In other words, does it require another an, or an other? Does it require some hmm. external instigation or can hmm. one out of fear mm. of jack the ripper be you know <laughs> can you can we create our own tornadoes mm-hmm. yeah i think we can yeah i mean it seems to me that anything uh can be generated anything that is generated by the sense phenomena um i mean i'm sort of working on this in my life lately i do kirtan i do um um it's a sort of a song and dance that's done in yoga, certain yoga groups. The Hare Krishnas are famous for doing it. And you chant a mantra in Sanskrit over and over, typically. And yeah, I yeah. Chant, chant my mantra. 
yeah, yeah. With the uh, harmonium, preferably with the harmonium. Yeah, you can use a harmonium. In my group, generally, it's guitars. In India, it's just one person leads and everyone repeats the tune. Mm-hmm. And in the USA, typically, there's guitars sometimes, drums, even occasionally a violin. And our mm-hmm. mantra is Baba Nam Kewalam, which is translated somewhat inaccurately as love is all there is. So lately, I'm doing, I do kirtan twice a day. And as I do it, lately, I'm picturing like thousands of people behind me. Uh, in fact, a mariachi orchestra. I must be going through a Mexican, Mexicanophilic phase in my life. And this whole mariachi band is playing. Oh, and also the Wu-Tang Clan. Because there's ah. some new TV series about the Wu-Tang Clan. So there's all these posters on the subway showing the Wu-Tang Clan replicated like 10 versions of ODB, Old Dirty Bastard, 10 versions of Method Man, 10 versions, 10 like kind of repeating images of Ghostface Killer. And and I picture the Wu-Tang Clan dancing with me, and it gets kind of realer and realer. If you Focus your mind on it. So I think, you know, if you want to imagine that a tornado or Jack the River is coming towards you, you can really, if you work at it, you can really convince yourself. Come to think of it, that's, I guess, what acting is. Mm. I mean, tornadoes themselves are a, are a reeling structure. Mm. You know, they whirl, they reel. They're a vortex. Yeah, yeah. vortextual, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, infinite, a, a subject of infinite um, interest for me. And, you know, we could talk about just the vortex and mm-hmm. the, you know, constitution of the tornado and water spouts and things like that. Yeah. But one thing occurs to me relative to the tornado and the sublime and the possibility of self m- manifesting or calling forth the sublime is it's kind of connected to inspiration that used to be something people used to talk about is like oh i need inspiration Mm -hmm. i need uh you know oh i have writer's block i need inspiration you know and stuff like that the muse before that the concept of the muse that you were inspired by these these uh, beings, these uh, god goddesses. Mm-hmm. These goddesses, you... and also as William Blake does, you know, these animals, which mm. we talked about, and natural phenomena, I guess. But also, yeah, uh huh, that we can um, have our own menagerie um, just through the imagination, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was read. I'm reading this book about Bob Dylan. It's called "Who Is That Man?" I forget who wrote it. Oh, David. It's kind. Of, you know it. I've read it. It's by this um guy. Uh, I think he may have been one of the co-founders of Rolling Stone magazine um, for a brief oh. period of time. I, I think his name is David Dalton. Who is oh. that man? By David Dalton. And huh. and he's talking about um how Dylan uh, came to write uh, "Chimes of Freedom." which is he was on this road trip with his friends. It's, what is it, 1964, 65? And they're traveling through the South. They stop in a hotel, I think. And um, the there's a blackout. The lights go out. And Dylan is kind of struck by this. 
And that's the uh, kind of the context. He starts writing Times of Freedom, which is kind of kind of about a blackout, it's about sort of electricity. What is it? The then the lightning far off flashed. Hmm. Uh, you know, it starts with this kind of image of lightning flashing and this uh, bell tolling. Maybe he even really heard a bell. Hmm. So that's a case of you know. Inspiration striking through the sublime terror of a blackout. Mm-hmm. My sense yeah. of sublime, though, is that it is external. I mean, one generates something, but the, there's an external phenomenon that one is responding to. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think, I, as I understood it, Sam was just asking hypothetically, it would it be possible to create your own sublime? Without, I, yeah, I guess I am. Yeah, I mean, of course, drugs come to mind. I mean, that's essentially what drugs are in my mind is a, a little mechanism to create sublimity. Uh huh. Definitely. Uh huh. On various yeah. various forms, various levels, different drugs create different, typically create different types of sublime experiences. Definitely. But one is still in the realm of cause and effect. Yeah. But, you know, even if you say, even what I'm saying is like, yeah, you just focus your imagination, imagine something sublime, that's also cause and effect. True. Yeah, it's very difficult to evade karma. I mean, I think there are moments of, uh, don't you think, Andrew, there are moments of spontaneous sublimity? Where suddenly one is, for no apparent reason, one is struck by the beauty of the universe or the terror of the universe or. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I feel really strongly, you know, and feel an equal faith in spontaneous combustion as I do <laughs> in spontaneous composition. You know, yeah. I have gotten to the point where I can write words on a piece of paper with which I don't interfere, you know, like I'm not, mm. um, I'm not dictate, I'm not administering their path, but they're just kind of, you know, the hand moves and right. I don't want to, you know, there's that medieval trope, the hand moves and the whole body labors, you know, mm. from the scriptoriums in the middle ages Hmm. But the hand moves and, you know, that sort of seems like that's it. The hand moves and then words appear. The hand writes. It's not yeah. you that's writing. Yeah, it's just hmm. kind of... I thought you were going to say, I've reached the point where I can spontaneously burst into flames. I thought yeah. that was, that was what, where you were going with the thought. No. Because you I were mean, saying I you guess... believe in spontaneous combustion. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess one can believe in, I, I was sort of thinking, you know, that which is terrible within us, you know, that which is um, terrifying within us um, would seem to be maybe that, that those little sprinkles of nitroglycerin in ourselves <laughs> that lead to spontaneous combustion which you don't hear about very much and but i do believe yeah. that it is a, a fact that the human body 
can spontaneously explode, right? Well, explode? I don't know that it's been it... proven. I think it's I think it's one of those in the realm of uh, uh, what is the Fortean? You know that that term F O R T E A N. Hmm. It was this guy Charles Fort F O R T E who compiled in the maybe the teens or twenties, nineteens or twenties, something like that. He compiled from newspaper clippings, from little articles in newspapers, like it rained frogs in uh, uh, Medford, Illinois, uh, last Tuesday. Or, or instead of raining water, frogs came down from the sky. Or their kangaroo was seen uh, hopping in uh, Indiana. Um, or someone spontaneously burst into flames. Uh, UFOs are included. So the Fortians are people that kind of study and sometimes theorize about all these unexplained phenomena. Fifth grade class read, there were these books by, I think this guy's name was Frank Edwards. They were called Stranger Than Science, something like that. And they, uh -huh. they were essentially modern day. There was 60s, 1960s era Fortian um, co collections of, of strange events. And we would read them and, you know, hypothesize about them and be fascinated by them. Farrow, mm -hmm. uh, my Fortean uh, equivalent would be in the 1980s when I was a child, growing up in Poughkeepsie. There's this series of books published by Time Life, huh. Mysteries of the Unknown. Histories? Mysteries of the Unknown. <laughs> Mysteries of the Unknown. And Spontaneous Combustion was featured in one of these um one of these editions, and I, I was very captivated by it. Did they have a photo? Um, no, it's the anecdotal. There were stories about it happening um, that seemed um, objectively uh, real. The, the, I didn't get a sense that this was um, fiction. Mm. Oh, no, it's not fiction, but it hasn't been authenticated. I read some book review once in the New York Times that said, no one has ever proven that cannibalism ever was practiced by any anybody is every tribe says oh that other tribe over there they're the cannibals and uh, it, it could be that uh, spontaneous combustion is a fraud you know it's, it's easy to set up a uh, you know two burnt slippers in front of a chair <laughs> and say oh yeah my neighbor uh, edward he just uh, you know uh, caught on fire and disappeared the other day hmm. Yeah, I mean, there the famous instance in literature of spontaneous combustion is from Charles Dickens from Bleak House. Uh -huh. I think there he chronicles an instance of spontaneous combustion. And of course, I mean, the idea of spontaneous combustion is is intimate to what we are fomenting or doing here. In that, yeah. you know, the rubric under which we perform these sessions is entitled Baffling Combustions. My God, I forgot that. I know. I yeah, know. that might be what it means. <laughs> it it's, might refer to the baffling uh, human combustion. It's very interesting. Uh -huh. It's very interesting because the next the next two proverbs, I think, um, speak to this phenomenon. Even which if is what? Obliquely, joys impregnate, sorrows bring forth. Huh. Yeah, yeah well, uh, wait, oh, uh, uh, bracket that, brother. 
because I think there's one we haven't uh, touched yet, and I'm going to read that. Oh, okay. The fox condemns the (laughs) trap, not himself. Mm, mm. And then joys impregnate, period. Sorrows bring forth. Mm, mm. That's that's complicated. Yeah. Andrew, what was your point about spontaneous combustion and joys impregnate, sorrows bring forth. Just these, these emotional states create something. Mm. Um, that something emerges, there's an emergent property that the, the joys uh, impregnate, um, generate. Mm. Sorrows bring forth something that um, mm-hmm. there's a combustion that, you know, that, that we emanate, that we create mm. from mm-hmm. it. Yeah, I mean, one. Yeah. That might not have existed before. Yeah. I mean, the one thing is that it also can be tracked in terms of our experience of procreation mm-hmm. in that the, the impregnation is often accompanied with a sense of like being happy, joyful, yippee. And then the process of its maturation and of actually giving birth is often you know is is, you know is it hurts right yeah i thought it it brings a sorrow like ow you know what what is happening to me you know i'm a guy so i can't speak to it and i've never given birth in this life but i've watched my wife give birth a few times and uh holy cow yeah i have had a similar experience i mean the one time my wife uh, did give birth i was although i was just telling someone today i think that uh, pretty much throughout the whole uh, labor i was laughing like it just struck me as funny for whatever reason that everything strikes me as funny or everything kind of extreme strikes me as funny. But I did you, feel for her. Yeah. Do you feel, Sparrow, that sometimes jovility or laughter or a sense of humorousness, etc., can act as a sort of cloaking device for, mm. you know, difficult information or for moments of, you know, what they call stress? Um, yeah, it seems to be some kind of release for me that uh, there was a job for years. I worked with uh, developmentally disabled adolescents, and there was one of the clients would have seizures. And I remember being at Disney World, and he was having a seizure, and I was laughing uh, wildly. And uh, I mean, there was something absurd about the situation, all these poor Americans going to attempt to have fun in Disney World and they're confronted by this kid writhing on the ground in a seizure and nobody knows what to do and it's not you know it's it's not part of the script of Disney World but nonetheless I feel a little bad about laughing about it yeah. I mean yeah I don't he didn't mind I'm sure I'm pretty sure because he don't think he understood anything yeah yeah my my daughter sometimes when we're having a difficult conversation or whatnot. She'll sometimes, you know, start laughing and 
Um, and I understand that that's, I identify it as a form of coping, you know? Yeah, I mean, it has a lot um, of purpose. It's pretty natural. I mean, it has the virtue of, in general, it's kind of inoffensive, as opposed to screaming or tearing your hair out or something you know, that doesn't people you know i think it's the fact that i'm always laughing sometimes makes people uneasy depends on the situation yeah what is that term gnashing of teeth what does that mean what does it mean to gnash your teeth is that like to grind them or something i think it's the same as grinding you put them together and you kind of they're 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 hitting on each other the, the teeth gnashing of teeth i think it's biblical it is huh. it's um I think a reference to eternal damnation, isn't it? It's often associated oh, yeah? with hell. Hmm. Gnashing teeth. Yeah, is the gnashing of teeth a form of speech? <laughs> no. I I don't think I don't think of it that way. I mean it might be accompanied by a certain kind of grunting. That's how I imagine it. And a lot of speech is difficult to do if your teeth are closed. Because you know, speech is done on front of talk with my teeth closed. <laughs> speech oh, is so done the, with the lips and tongue. Uh-huh. Gnashing so the of gnashing teeth. of teeth is just like compressing the teeth together and grinding them together? That's my sense, yeah. Yeah, maybe not necessarily grinding, gnashing. I guess it is the same as grinding. Yeah. I kind of associate it with frustration. You, you yeah. gnash your teeth because you're just kind of mad at yourself that you can't accomplish anything or that everything's going wrong, something like that. So it's a kind of state of impotence. Maybe it's like mm. speech is sort of a negative speech. It's kind of like so anger. Not able to, yeah. Anger turned inward. That's how I see it, which, I, you know, according to some theories is what depression is. But it's a much more kind of vivid, anguished, like depression, you tend to kind of turn off. Gnashing of teeth, you're, you're, it's almost a kind, it's an action. You're, 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 you're expressing your frustration. Uh huh. You know, when people go like, <laughs> something like, you know, people do that still in the modern world. They express, frustration sometimes in these inarticulate sounds. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's interesting in terms of the first uh, Blake sentence that we're looking at. The fox condemns the trap, mm-hmm. not himself. So when you gnash your teeth, there's an aspect in which you're doing a self-condemnation. Hmm. I thought you were going to say that also, like, the the teeth are kind of like a trap. Like, you think of a teeth, huh. that the way a trap has teeth that kind of close on an animal's paw. Huh, that's the, interesting. The teeth close, your human teeth close on themselves and kind of trap your tongue and your mouth. It's and trap simple. speech. Like, you can't yeah. talk, you can't say very clearly anything you can't <laughs> Like you, everything gets thrown off. There's yeah, no we should do wind. a whole yeah yeah. We should do a whole podcast where we just keep our teeth closed the whole time, gnash our teeth, 
and try to talk in Russian terms. <laughs> try yeah. to talk as we can, as I say. The fox has a special significance, right? The fox, um, according to folklore at least, the fox often has a negative connotation. Mm-hmm. Being a trickster, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Being sly, sly like the fox. The fox condemns the trap, not himself. Mm-hmm. Nothing wrong with the fox. The fox is a beautiful creature. They're beautiful. Right. Mm-hmm. That's why they're trapped. They're typically trapped to the extent that they are. I guess they're trapped for two reasons. One, so they don't eat the chickens. Two, to make uh, fox stoles out of, to make uh, fur, uh, you know, uh, ornaments out of. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I guess the fox as a cra- as a manifestation of that, which is crafty, subtle, myriad-minded capable of negotiating circumstance to its own advantage, though often is not, you know, where the tables are turned on him, I guess. But it's all externally driven. You know, Mm. the fox has a goal and does things in order to achieve its goal. And so the trap is falls into that scheme then the then the fox has a goal escape the trap not Hmm. you know sit there gnashing its teeth and Hmm. feeling sorry for itself perhaps Hmm. Hmm. well i just i just assume it means something like uh it's not the fox's fault that there's a trap humans make traps and traps are let's say, evil, then something gets caught in the trap. They blame the the animal. They don't notice that we made the trap. It's our fault that something, that this creature is suffering. It is interesting to think about the philosophy of um, animals, the philosophy behind animals that we condemn Mm -hmm. versus the philosophies behind animals that we extol, that we idolize, that we elevate. Mm. Very. I know my daughter, um, Sophia, first few years of her life, until actually uh, very recently, last month happened again, she thinks rats are very graceful. (laughs) (laughs) You mean when she sees a real rat? Yeah. She says, oh, how cute. (laughs) 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 We have a different perspective on it, um, well, maybe for good reason, but we've been conditioned to think of them as disease-bearing and aggressive and um, a species to be annihilated. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's interesting, Andrew. You know, you and I have done various peregrinations around the neighborhood on the Upper West Side. Uh-huh. And um, yeah, I've. Um, I hope this is okay. I've seen you actually like physically cringe, you know, <laughs> when, a, when a rat shot out from a building into like some bags of trash yeah, in front of us and you like shrink back. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I do find them creepy at times in that scenario when I'm walking um, like on the sidewalk and one darts mm-hmm. out from a, from a heap of, uh, of trash. Um, that freaks me out. 
like uh, this past winter, Sophia jumped onto what she thought was a snowbank, but it was really just um, a thinly covered pile of trash bags uh, covered with <laughs> snow. And maybe 15 or 20 rats burrowed out. Really? Shot out. And huh. I, I grabbed her, and it, for me, it was freaky. And she said, Daddy, wasn't that so cool? Nimbus <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, is born in the year of the rat. You know, yeah. the Chinese uh, system of uh, astrology has each year has a different animal. One of them's the rat. I think they, a, they're like your daughter. They don't see the rat as negative. I, I'm a rat, Sparrow. Oh, are you a rat? Yeah. I've hmm. always taken great pride in in being a rat. I, you know, I'm not that much of a follower of the Chinese system. I don't really understand it, and I don't see how a year, you know, this circling of the sun you know i'm not sure how it particularly uh relates to our incarnation but you know well I mean, does a month make more sense <laughs> i had a growing up in dc there was um a person who lived in chevy chase maryland who and his nickname was rat r-a-t oh. Yeah, and he completely embraced it. He even, he would contract his face and sort of become rat-like, like his face mm. would adopt this kind of um, mm. rat mask. And he actually was a really down and dirty, um, <laughs> really like a kind of, he was sort of suave, you know, like he had a certain oh. savoir-faire. Um, but it was a mask that he would adopt in order to insinuate himself into different situations. Mm. And then he would go about systematically destroying things, you know, hurting <laughs> things, hurting people, relationships, oh. um, vandalizing a house, etc. Mm. Yeah. You know what happened to him? You know what? I, I it's pretty interesting. I just looked this up. Um, that, that the in, in medieval uh, bestiaries, the um, the fox was associated with um, devil worship. Uh, huh. Wow. Yeah, it is. That. that is interesting. It's, it kind of circles back. At some point, I think we talked about Kubrick's film Eyes Wide Shut, mm-hmm. and in that kind of ultimate scene of bacchanalian exposure many mm. of the masks that these cats were wearing were the, the mask of a fox oh i don't remember that here's yeah. a uh, here's a quotation from a, a getty um, blog um getty.edu the sly nature of the fox is given a christological moral in medieval bestiaries the fox much like the devil uses trickery to attract oh. when the fox is hungry and cannot find anything to eat it rolls in red mud to make itself look battered and bloodied then lies on its back to appear dead this maneuver tricks other hungry animals often birds to pick at its remains once the birds are close the fox snatches one up for dinner this this is a myth right this is something they believed in the middle ages but it's not true i don't think I don't know, but I'm looking at multiple uh, bestiaries right now um, in which um, that action is depicted. Hmm. Hmm. That's interesting. It's a good trek. 
I guess human <laughs> beings do that also at times. But it's also interesting in terms of Blake. I mean, I think statistically, if we were to like look at all of the animals referenced in Proverbs of Hell, mm. I think, you know, the preponderance of that list would be animals that have a, a classically negative hmm. assignment, you know? Yeah, and we're not there yet, but in a few proverbs in this mini uh, epic catalog of non-human animals, um, we encounter the rat, the mouse, the fox, the rabbit, all of which I know for right. sure are depicted in negative terms in the bestiaries as having uh, hmm. Anti moral anti-christological attributes, like the rabbit and concupiscence that it procreates so much, hmm. sort of licentiousness associated with the rabbit, but we'll get there. But you're right. But the mouse, What's the, what about the mouse? Cowardice, you would say? I, I, I don't know. I mean, it would be interesting to look up. Yeah. Well, mice are associated with trash, with the leavings of humans. Hmm. Um, but I think we're talking about the medieval connotations, isn't that what right? Which are yeah, kind of I mean, different, you know, than our world. I think. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think that Blake's part of Blake's purpose, per se, mm. is a little bit of turning the world upside down, or at least <laughs> opening people up to mm. the reversal of our given conceptual domains and prejudices and ideas of, oh, I like this. Oh, I don't like that. I mean, right? I just thought suddenly of a uh, Marxist interpretation of Blake, which is that, you know, it's a very oversimplified idea, but there might be some truth in it that according to Marx, what is the purpose of capitalism? to destroy feudalism. So uh, Blake is, is contemporaneous with the rise of capitalism, with the Industrial Revolution, which he's totally against. But part of what he's doing is he's taking the whole uh, medieval feudalistic system of theology and of logic and breaking it down the way capitalism will eventually do. He's ahead of the, the pack in that way. He's avant-garde. Mm. <laughs> I mean, I guess, you know, but also in terms of just psychology, more often than not, and I think I can speak from experience, I tend to catch myself in traps of my own construction. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good You point. know, I feel that many of my moves in life have been dictated by a sort of self-imposed imprisonment. And, and I really feel like a lot of the kind of mental churning that I do, you know, the default mode network, whatever they call it now, in which the mind starts to sort of cannibalize itself and mm -hmm. rehearse different scenarios from the past and um, kind of self-berating, you know, if I allow that to manifest, it just sort of 
feels a little bit like I'm condemning myself and not the trap. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I become self-involved with my own entrapness instead of being a good fox and getting the hell out of it. <laughs> right? Also, what strikes me, that maybe a literary or kind of postmodern interpretation of the uh, uh, proverb is, um, we are trying to trap Blake with our minds, trying to make mm. sense of him, con- construct uh, logical prisons that will make sense of these kind of incomprehensible or mystifying uh, phrases, and we're really just condemning ourselves. We're not. Uh, uh, mm. We're not condemning. We never get to the fox. We don't really know. We'll never get to the real Blake. We'll never. We'll, we'll never mm. truly trap him. We'll just trap ourselves with all these constructions that uh, ultimately fail in some way. Uh huh. Well, yeah, that's interesting. I mean, in terms of being able to see the wind, you know, we can only see the wind through its work. Or, Mm. you know, we can only see the force behind the words through the words and the shape that we're kind of intuiting behind the words that is the actual impetus of Blake's uh, vision, per se. I mean, I, I would kind of disagree a little bit, Sparrow. Uh In that I think phrase by phrase, sentence by sentence, statement by statement, Blake's pretty comprehensible and we can interrogate each of these parts and kind of come to something that I think approximates kind of what he meant in these particular instances. But I think where the, the real mystery and incomprehensibility falls is more in its kind of larger or macro dynamic um, of the thrust of the whole piece of Proverbs of Hell and then how that in turn fits into this larger construction, you know, called the marriage, the mm-hmm. coming together of heaven and hell mm-hmm. as a dynamic system. I guess what a I'm representation trying to say. of a dynamic system like a hurricane. I guess what I'm saying is I'm kind of disagreeing with you. I'm saying like that, like one time it occurred to me, some really comical photographer came uh, to take a photograph of me for the back cover of one of my books. And I saw the photograph, which was a great photograph. And it reminded me so much of this woman that took my photograph. And I started to think maybe all photographs are photographs of the photographer. The photographer hmm. looks at the world and sees herself or himself. And uh, that's what I feel, at least how it feels to me, is we're we're trying to paint a picture of what is Blake, and in doing so, we're painting pictures of ourselves, painting pictures of, of who we are, because the Blake mm-hmm. that's in, because he's created kind of a like a prismatic hall of mirrors in which you see mm-hmm. yourself. You know, there, mm-hmm. it may be true of any work of art, but I think it's more true of this one that, that there's, there's no tangible foothold in it. Yeah. So, so you end a, up kind of being aware of, of your own 
limitations, being aware, you end up looking at yourself, which is not uh, bad. Yeah, looking at our own traps. I mean, it reminds me of, say, you know, Susan Howe's My Emily Dickinson. Oh, yeah. Uh, that title always struck me, you know, a, a, as a good title because it sort of points toward that. Um, where's the actual book? She's really just saying, you know, let's look at what Emily Dickinson wrote, not in terms of what we're able to, you know, read. Oh, she hand wrote this word after that word, but the lineation, the way she actually wrote down these sentences. She's saying, let's look at that. Let's look at the poetics of what she actually wrote. So mm. in a way, it wasn't what she actually produces is something closer to Emily Dickinson's Emily Dickinson. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I think uh, sometimes the title leads you, helps you imagine a whole other book. There's a book by... Robert Benchley that my dad had when I was a kid. It was called, it's called something like After 1909, what? After 1909, what? And <laughs> Good I would question. look at that title and I would like, it was just full of, almost like a Zen koan, you know, like a, a question that you could ponder. And I always assumed it was a serious book, like some kind of book of political economy. But uh -huh. it's just a book of humor. The title means nothing. But it's it's a great title, and it's great because it parodies serious titles, and it's great because it does kind of make you think. Not only does it make you think after 1909 what, but it also makes you think of something very abstract that's embedded in those words. Uh huh. About like the nature of questioning itself or something like that. Yeah, I mean, what I hear is sort of after 1909, so what? Because, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, 1909 is not typically a date that we ascribe with some big shift of, you know, right. the um, experiment that we're Unlike all engaged in called being alive. 1914 is when the Jehovah's Witnesses say that the devil... Uh, took over the earth, fell from heaven, and something like that. Everything, yeah. has, the world's been dominated by Satan since 1914. Yeah, there's that terrific um, Barbara Tuckman history of the First World War called The Guns of August. Oh yeah, good title. Yeah. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous and please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.